Welcome to Common Ground, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Are transatlantic relations improving under Joe Biden? And why is there still no U.S. ambassador to Germany? These are some of the questions Germans are asking as the American president approaches his first half year in office. Senior producer Dina El-Sayed reports on where things stand. President Joe Biden bumped elbows and joked with European leaders he met at various summits in June, including in Brussels. The American leader repeatedly assured his European partners that America was back. Well, I think we have a great opportunity to work with the EU as well as NATO earlier, and uh, we're feeling very good about it. Many European leaders were visibly relieved to put their previous four years of transatlantic turmoil behind them. One was EU Council President Charles Michel. Well, Mr. President, dear Joe, you are back in Brussels, and America is back on the global scene. Uh, it's great news. It's great news for our alliance. It's also great news for the world. And we are really delighted to work with you in order to, to tackle together some important global challenges. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen praised Biden's diplomatic speed. The fact that you're coming so early in your mandate, I think, underlines your personal attachment to Europe, and we really appreciate that. And indeed, the last four years have not been easy. Uh, the world has dramatically changed, Europe has changed, but we wanted to reassure you, your friends and allies, and we are very much looking forward to working together. But German Chancellor Angela Merkel made it clear that while multilateralism is back, getting her country and the United States on the same page will take some work. She told G7 reporters, the election of Joe Biden doesn't mean the world's problems go away, but we can work with renewed vigor to solve these problems. Among the points of contention between Washington and Berlin are the controversial pipeline called Nord Stream 2 that will deliver natural gas from Russia to Germany, punitive tit-for-tat tariffs, as well as German reluctance to fund its part of NATO. And a delay in sending a new U.S. ambassador to Germany doesn't send the best signal. But a Merkel visit to the White House this month may well be accompanied by an announcement for that post. It also provides another chance for Germany and the United States to iron out their differences. That was senior producer Dina El-Sayed. Joining me via Zoom to discuss the state of transatlantic relations are Bloomberg columnist Andreas Klut, Suda David Wilp, who is a senior transatlantic fellow and deputy director of the German Marshall Fund's Berlin office, and Brett Samuels, White House reporter for The Hill, a top political news site in the United States. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks. Suda, what are you seeing in terms of the relationship between Berlin and Washington? Has it improved as much as you thought it might following the Biden win? Well, there was a big bump um, after President Biden was elected last year. But I think most Germans are still very wary of the political situation in the United States. They see the polarization. And there is an interesting statistic from our transatlantic trend survey that just came out that said that only 51% of Germans still think of the U.S. as a reliable partner. So although there was a sigh of relief once President Biden was elected 
and a, um, you know, enthusiasm to work together to sort of pick up where things left off. I think there is a feeling on this side of the Atlantic that maybe things actually can't go back to the way they were before. And Andreas, uh, in Politico recently, there was an observation that said, quote, the hostile and nasty arrogance of Donald Trump is gone, replaced by the more polite and friendly American arrogance that they remember, not always fondly from their dealings with previous U.S. presidents. Do you agree with that characterization? No, I don't agree that there's arrogance on the part of Joe Biden or his administration. I have to say I'm slightly disappointed about the German side, the outgoing Merkel administration and Angela Merkel, the chancellor herself. I would have expected her to be more forthcoming. In fact, after this trauma of Donald Trump, of the Trump years, this was the big chance to build new bridges across the Atlantic. And she did two things in particular that disappointed me. The first was in December, just a few weeks before Joe Biden took office and before he had a chance to talk to her about this, she pushed through the China-European Union um, investment deal, which is not being ratified for other reasons now, but uh, still, she pushed that much faster than Washington was comfortable with in the context of their trying to line up their transatlantic partners against China, basically. And then the second thing is, of course, this pipeline between Russia and Germany called Nord Stream 2, uh, which the U.S. is against, and Poland and Ukraine and the Baltic countries and France and the EU, everyone is against, but it's almost finished, and she is doggedly uh, sticking with it, even though the U.S. really wanted that removed. And now the U.S. basically is dropping that. It says, well, it's too late. We have other fish to fry. But those are two areas where I thought she could have very easily, you know, made some gestures that show we're ready to... Uh, work together. And she didn't. So I think that's very disappointing. And basically, we're all running down the clock till the election in September and seeing who's the next chancellor to see what happens next. Do you think that maybe that would have been less a case if there was an ambassador here? I mean, we're almost six months into this new administration, and there's still no word as to who the ambassador uh, will be, the new ambassador, although we expect to hear, obviously, shortly. But is the fact that there's no diplomat on the ground here to sort of help with the prodding, if that has any effect on why perhaps Germany is sort of going, or I should say the Merkel government is sort of going its own way? I don't think it matters whether or not there's an ambassador. I think you were doing this over Zoom. I think they're quite capable of doing it over their own more secure methods. Of course, it'll help. He's going to send some very qualified. Joe Biden is he's putting his ambassadors out into the important countries now, and I'm sure Germany will be filled soon, the position. The scandal was not him taking a couple of months to do it. The scandal was Trump, first of all, who he chose the last time around, one of you know the least qualified and plausible ambassadors, uh, Richard Grinnell. And then when he left, leaving that open for so long, that was the scandal. Joe Biden now has to find the right person. But as I said, I think it's overrated um, whether or not there is someone physically in Berlin to have those conversations. Those conversations are being had anyway. Well, Brett, let me ask about what's happening on the other side of the pond at the moment. Is Congress and our other officials, or even the Republicans for that matter, concerned about the fact that President Biden has taken this long to fill key ambassadorships? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. I think, you know, when it comes to lawmakers in Congress, 
you know, they have different priorities. Certainly, Democrats have these very narrow majorities in both uh, the House and the Senate in Congress, and they're looking to sort of push through these these priorities that they have while they have those narrow majorities with the midterm elections uh, just over a year away at this point. So I think their focus right now at least may lie elsewhere, and ambassadors um, are sort of on the back burner, even though when it comes to, to certain countries like Russia and others where there's a little more concern about foreign policy, they may prioritize those a little bit more. But at this point, I think the focus for them may be more on the legislative side, just for a sense of urgency. But I do think we see former diplomats, former State Department officials, especially after the last four years of the Trump administration, where the State Department was sort of hollowed out. You saw political allies and political donors get these plum ambassadorships and the State Department sort of, you know, lost a lot of institutional experience and had a drop in morale. I think that's where we're seeing this push and sort of this frustration about the pace at which Biden has named ambassadors and has filled some of these key posts from former diplomats and folks with ties to the State Department who were hoping for sort of a change of pace from Biden in, in terms of how things operate with appointing ambassadors, with putting an emphasis on the State Department and things of that nature. Suda, do you think the fact that all these ambassador spots are open, uh, that this hurt Biden during the recent G7 and other summits that he went to here in Europe in June? So President Biden has a real um, sort of brain trust when it comes to foreign policy advisors because he was able to pick experienced people from the Obama administration, of course, also um, bring together some other wings of the Democratic Party. There's also a lot of people from all the other presidential candidates like Senator Warren and Senator Sanders have also had a few people now join the Biden administration. So I think he has good people around them. And certainly an ambassador is a very important tool when it comes to diplomacy, because that person is really the you know face of the US government on the ground and it may have even been you know to the merit of Richard Grinnell he was not the easiest personality for Germans to uh, work with but you know what you see is what you get there was a very quick <laughs> understanding of uh, the Trump administration once Ambassador Grinnell hit the ground here in Berlin. So I think that the topics between Germany and the US or in the transatlantic relationship, whether it be relations with Russia or China, are pretty clear to everybody on both sides of the Atlantic simply because there's already good channels of communication between the foreign policy advisors and capitals across Europe and in DC. But an ambassador will certainly help facilitate the public diplomacy that the Biden administration wants to make front and center, specifically how important it is to strengthen our democracies from the inside and also to ward off threats from external actors. Well, let me just follow up with a question about Rick Grinnell. Do you think he did damage to the post, to the ambassadorial post here in Germany uh, in terms of how Germans are willing to provide or give respect to the new ambassador? I mean, is all forgiven over what Grinnell did? So I don't think one can necessarily judge Ambassador Grinnell specifically. I think it's more an attitude or, you know, how the Trump administration worked with allies or really dealt with allies. And I think that was sort of the damage that President Biden and his administration needs to now recoup over the next couple of months to show that truly America is back after a time when um, the U.S., 
thought of things in a very transactional way and didn't see the history or the um, value add with working with allies. My last question goes to all of you before we go to break here, and that is, um, do you have any idea who the next ambassador might be or any thoughts on who should be considered? And Brett, we'll start with you since you're in Washington. Yeah, so uh, Germany has been one where there haven't been a lot of names bouncing around like we've seen with some of these other posts. Uh, One name that has come up in reporting has been Vicki Kennedy, who's the former wife of the late Senator uh, Ted Kennedy. And Ted Kennedy was obviously very close with Joe Biden in the Senate. So um, there is some history there. But, uh, you know, beyond that, there haven't been too many names uh, bouncing around. There's just a sense that uh, some of these folks with ties to the State Department would like to see a non-political donor, essentially, you know, someone who's a career diplomat, maybe get some of these posts. Andreas, who would you like to see if you haven't heard or, you know, don't have any information on the scoop, as it were? You know, I don't know who it'll be. Um, I know I'm, I'm the odd man out on this. I don't think it matters all that much. I mean, I remember John Emerson being here. I remember Phil Murphy being here. Uh, they didn't speak German, really. Uh, John Kornblum, of course, does and is an expert, and that would help. You know, I'd, I'd like to see John take a second turn, of course, but that is unlikely. Um, I don't think it's important that it's an expert. I think it just there is a better um, rapport between the two administrations and almost anyone who's more or less, you know, has good table manners will do the job fine. Suda, what do you have to add to that? Um, Germany is a tricky case these days. Um, you know, John Kornblum was the sort of last ambassador who was a career diplomat, who was a Germany hand. Since then, Germany's seen political appointees or donors as ambassadors from the United States. And uh, Germany is, you know, de facto the most important country in Europe at the moment. And I think the U.S. recognizes Berlin as an important partner to make sure that its goals for curbing a um, difficult or disruptor Russia and also curbing China's ambitions, the United States sees Germany as an important part. And so I think it's important that there is somebody politically savvy in the post. But as Andrea said, the person doesn't need to be a Germany hand like John Kornblum. Uh, I think that the um, embassy staff is pretty professional here in Berlin. They do send, obviously, very experienced um, DCMs as well uh, to the posts. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll address what the sticking points are for transatlantic relations. Stay tuned. Hi everyone, I'm Maurice Frank, editor of the Berliner Zeitung English Edition, which is a proud partner of Common Ground. Is it hard for you to figure out what's going on in Berlin because everything you read or hear is in German? We at Berliner Zeitung English Edition can help, providing you with all the news you can use in English, whether on politics, business or culture. We also offer riveting interviews and commentary. Look for us at berliner-zei. T-U-N-G.de slash E-N. Or just type in Berliner Zeitung English Edition into your search engine. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, the host of Common Ground. And I'm Dina El Sayed, the senior producer. Each week we bring you a new lively discussion on a hard-hitting topic. If you want to learn more about our podcast, check out our website at commongroundberlin.com. 
The episodes are free to download, but they aren't free to create. Common Ground depends on grants as well as donations from listeners like you. So if you want to help us out, please click on the donate button at commongroundberlin.com. And thanks for listening. Democracy. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. Welcome back to Common Ground. I'm Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson, and joining me via Zoom are Bloomberg opinion columnist Andreas Klut, Suda David Wilk of the German Marshall Fund, and Brett Samuels, White House reporter for The Hill. Let's talk about what has worked and what hasn't worked these past six months as the Biden administration tries to repair transatlantic ties. Suda, what do you see as the successes? You know, I do think that the um, recent summits have um, shown Europeans that President Biden and his administration, they value Europe, they value the partnership with Europe. But there are some things that also haven't changed. I mean, there are still tariffs. Um, American or Europeans can't travel to the United States at the moment. So although um, President Biden is probably the most Europeanist of presidents in the last 15 years or so, even so more than President Obama, because, you know, you have to remember when President Obama entered office, he was looking um, for a pivot to Asia and Europeans were alarmed at that notion. And I think with President Biden, who knows Europe very well, also because he served so many years um, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Europeans can be rest assured that there is somebody that um, is well versed in foreign affairs. Uh, but I still think there's not going to be sort of a status quo ante. Things are not going to go back to the way they were before. And Europeans will have to do more and not depend on the United States for everything, because clearly the Indo-Pacific region is the high priority for the United States at the moment. Brett, let's go back to across the pond for a moment. And I'm wondering what the Biden administration sees as the successes of the G7 summit, of the summits uh, with NATO and the EU and so forth. Did he come away or did his staff and administration come away feeling that he got everything he wanted out of those meetings? You know, I'm not sure that they got everything they wanted necessarily, but I do think that uh, the president and his staff definitely viewed the the trip to Europe as a success for sure, just in the sense that, you know, they had sort of this very basic goal that they wanted to go to the G7, go to NATO and essentially reassure allies, you know, that America can be counted on again, that the U.S. will be there for its allies. You heard President Biden repeatedly affirm uh, you know, the U.S. commitment to NATO and to Article 5, uh, the Mutual Defense Clause. You heard him repeatedly say, you know, something to the effect of America is back or America is back at the table. Uh, so that was really the message they were looking to drive home just on a basic level. And you saw him defer to, to President Macron and others uh, who essentially said, you know, the same thing that they agreed that the U.S. was back as a leading partner on some of these key global issues. Now, beyond that, you know, they got some of what I think they were looking to get, 
We saw, you know, the resolution to this Boeing Airbus uh, trade dispute was something tangible they could point to. And uh, the inclusion of concerns about human rights in China, specifically in the final document out of the G7. So those are just a couple items that they can sort of tangibly point to that the U.S. was pushing for to call it a success. Now, obviously, there remain some some tensions between how the U.S. would like to approach China and Russia compared to how some of the, the European Union countries, including Germany, might prefer to. And so I think we'll continue to see those issues play out. Andreas, this visit to the U.S. that uh, Merkel is planning to do in in mid-July, what do you see coming out of that? I mean, is this going to be more beneficial to Merkel and to the CDU and CSU ultimately since there's an election coming up? Or do you think this is uh, better for White House optics? Or what do you think will come out of it? Or what are you looking for? I don't think this meeting is so much about optics. Merkel now is a lame duck. She doesn't need optics anymore. I think the main topic will be Nord Stream 2, this gas pipeline that I I mentioned, and what to do about it. Uh, Other topics that'll come up, because they always come up, is how much Germany spends on its army. America wants them to spend more, and Germany is going too slow towards increasing that. And of course, China, perhaps the investment deal, and as Suda mentioned, tariffs. But I think the main topic will be Nord Stream 2, where there'll be a decision one way or another this year on whether or not, because the pipeline will be ready, whether or not to actually pipe gas through it and under what conditions. And Merkel will try to, she must try to offer the Americans something to justify piping the gas that the Americans don't want pumped through it. And that something will probably have to do with additional guarantees that the Russians will not and cannot turn off the tap on the pipelines now running through Ukraine, which would be a form of blackmail or form of aggression against them. And they'll probably discuss what can we do to make sure the Russians will never turn off gas through Ukraine, even when they start pumping gas through the Baltic directly to Germany. They already do, but at twice the volume and simultaneously through the Black Sea. And they can have these two ways of getting gas to Western Europe that do not involve all the Central and Eastern European countries. I think that's what they'll talk about. I don't know whether they'll announce something, but she has to offer something after not offering anything for so many months now. As a follow-up question to you, Andreas, can President Biden really afford to allow Nord Stream to go forward? I mean, this is obviously something that President Trump made a lot of noise about when he was uh, in office. And if let's say this pipeline ends up opening, which, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there doesn't seem to be any doubt that it will. Is this going to create problems? Uh, Is this going to be a blow for President Biden? Yes, but the blow has already happened. You asked me, can he afford to let this happen? And the answer is yes, because he cannot afford to force it to stop and thereby damage German-American relations again. Blinken said this, uh, I think, last month is that, well, this is almost finished, we can't stop it. There were sanctions. The U.S. Congress wants to slap sanctions on on individuals and companies involved in the gas pipeline. They could have gone nuclear, as it were, but that was just at the time when they're trying to say that more generally, as we saw during the summits, um, that, no, there is a transatlantic relationship and there is a West, we are standing together. So they didn't want to spoil this alliance with Germany just over that issue. They said, well, it's too far down the road, and they backed down. I think that was gracious 
it wasn't weak. It was gracious. But the ball is now in Merkel's court. She has to give them something. Uh, and I'm very curious what it is. It's a very, very awkward situation. Um, can I jump in here, Soraya? Absolutely, Suda. Go ahead. I actually think um, Andreas is onto something. The Biden administration will expect something in return because Congress was not amused by um, that the Biden administration wasn't willing to um, implement some of these sanctions. But I think the big uh, prize is China. I think that the Biden administration will really want Germany to work with Europe and work with the United States to have a united front when it comes to China and not waver just because of economic profit. I mean, and I, I think that this is what they expect. They want Germany to toe the line and maybe not so much Merkel because she's a lame duck, as Andreas mentioned. But, you know, whatever parties make up the next um, government in Berlin, they're going to want Germany to work hand in hand with the United States on China. Brett, let me ask you about President Biden and any frustration he might have with European leaders on the issue of China. I mean, they're not exactly falling in lockstep with him on what to do about China. As Andreas mentioned, there is the the deal, the investment deal, and there are other statements that have come out that show a great discomfort with a quote-unquote cold war with China taking place. I mean, that's what some people might say. So I'm just wondering, is he frustrated with European leaders over that? Yeah, I think there's certainly some degree of you know frustration or, or tension about how to approach China. Certainly, President Biden would like to sort of take a, a tougher line on China through human rights, uh, calling them out on human rights, calling them out on economic practices. President Biden, throughout his trip uh, to return to sort of a theme of, of his G7 and NATO trip, he repeatedly sort of spoke about the, the world being in this precarious place between uh, whether democracies will succeed or autocracies. And that sort of seemed to be a very thinly veiled shot at the need to confront China. So, you know, on human rights, they got some language in, in the, the joint communique at the end of the G7, and that was pushed for uh, by the Biden administration. And they very specifically point to that as a victory that they were able to get that language in. Uh, but certainly, I think the Biden administration is going to continue to sort of work on its European partners, you know, leaders in France, in Germany, and elsewhere, who are not necessarily looking to take quite as hard, hard of a line on China. They are interested in the prospect of, of trade deals and economic deals. Um, so I think that'll be, you know, sort of a difference to keep an eye on and something to watch as we, we continue to see these leaders meet and, and sort of see how they're able to work out those differences and if they prove to be sort of a, a major boiling point in these relationships. Do any of you see any of the sticking points that exist between Germany and the United States in terms of transatlantic relations that we've talked about? Any of those insurmountable? Andreas, why don't you go first? I think they're not insurmountable, but, and I think Suda pointed this out earlier already. You know, I like the metaphor of the, the Atlantic Ocean is growing, as you know, in tectonic terms. And Europe and the U.S. are drifting further apart at a very low speed year after year. And I think that'll continue. And Europe has to have this debate, so Germany and France, whether they want to have go to war in the direction of a European army, whether they want to, you know, Macron talks about European sovereignty, European autonomy, and it's never clear, is that just to make a stronger partner for the U.S. or, you know, potentially as an alternative to a transatlantic uh, relationship. 
And this will may be accelerated by an actual crisis, probably sparked by Vladimir Putin, uh, or perhaps two simultaneous crises, one perhaps with China involving Taiwan, where that would be a priority for the U.S., and a simultaneous one uh, sparked by Russia in Europe. And then we would know pretty quickly which way this is going. But I see Europe sort of increasingly drifting geopolitically. Uh, it's not a matter of a fallout or a rift with the U.S. It's just they're not looking at the world in the same way, and they will sometimes work together and very often not. Suda, go ahead. One particular area where I do see sort of just a clash of perspective is on defense spending. This has been just sort of the eternal debate in Germany about whether Germany should spend more on military. I mean, they see themselves as a very post-post society that doesn't need to spend money on defense, and there is no need um, for investment in hard security. Of course, they rely on the United States for the security umbrella. But I think this is an issue that, um, you know, although certain parties within Germany have committed to the 2% spending, the majority of this country is left of center. And um, I think that it will be very hard to see um, Germany, you know, bridge the gap when it comes to security spending in the near future. Brett, do you think that President Biden would compromise on that 2% figure? Or do you think that he is going to hold firm to it the way the past presidents uh, that I can remember (laughs) have done? Yeah, I'd be surprised if he sort of reverses course on that. And I do think, as others have said, you know, that is something to watch for as a potential area of difference. Um, I think one other area to watch, which perhaps there will be some sort of resolution in the near future, is the president was asked about this while he was in Europe, but he has maintained these tariffs from the Trump administration on imports from European countries. And he was sort of asked if, you know, if this came up, if there was frustrations from his European counterparts during the G7 about leaving those tariffs in place. And President Biden was, you know, a little short with the reporter and said, you know, give me some time. I've only been in office 120 days or whatever it's been. So I think that's another area that I keep an eye on is whether the Biden administration uh, decides to maintain these Trump era tariffs that certainly have have caused some frustrations and some tensions with uh, with foreign leaders. Suda, I'm going to ask you the last question, um, and that is, do you think that the German elections this September are going to affect German policies toward the U.S.? I mean, is it going to make transatlantic relations better or worse in your estimation? I think um, it'll be really more of a status quo situation because the mainstream parties that end up coming together to form a coalition have basically very similar views and see the transatlantic relationship as a pillar of German foreign and security policy. But it will be interesting to see the Greens in a coalition because they've taken a very strident note when it comes to relations with Russia and China and have basically hit the same tone as the Biden administration. Although um, when you ask them if they're willing to you know, invest um, 2% or what they think about nuclear weapons on European soil, there is a divergence. <laughs> That's where the convergence ends. But I think for the most part, whoever's in the chancellery and whatever the color of the coalition um, that comes together, transatlantic relations will be sort of um, the same. It's going to be on the same trajectory. Andreas, anything you want to add to that? Or do you agree? I agree completely. Yeah, There's an outside chance of what they call a green-red-red coalition, which current polls suggest isn't even possible. That would be 
very bad for transatlantic relations, but all the other mainstream combinations that Suda mentioned, green, black, black, green, or even green, uh, red, yellow, I mean, just to get too geeky, would in one form or another represent the status quo. And I think the Greens, once they're in power, would very quickly become pragmatic and realize that they have to spend more on the army. Uh, it's just a matter of whether it's 2% right away. And would, of course, accept also the nuclear uh, doctrine that West Germany and Germany have had so far. That was Bloomberg opinion columnist Andreas Klut. My other guests were Suda David Wilp, who is the German Marshall Fund's senior transatlantic fellow and deputy director of the Berlin office, and Brett Samuels, White House reporter for The Hill, the largest independent political news site in the United States. Thanks for your insights today. Thank you, Soraya. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening to Common Ground. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed. Common Ground is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Thank you also to our partners, the Berliner Zeitung English Edition and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. You can download all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you are on Apple, why not write a review on Common Ground or subscribe to the podcast on Spotify? Be sure to also check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. 